0: You're listening to the Hope Assembly podcast with Pastor Ryan Day. For more information, you can visit us online at hopeassembly.org. Please enjoy this week's sermon. Well, we're going to get into the Word this morning, and we're not really in a series right now. We just wrapped up our series on Pentecost. I hope that that blessed you. And uh, we're going to do a couple of, uh, of sermons here, just kind of just things that the Lord has been speaking to our hearts Um, and so, uh, today's sermon is, uh, again, not a part of a series, just something God has been speaking to me and I titled it Accidental Anarchists. So, uh, stick with me though, like don't tune out all of a sudden and be like, oh no, here we go. Stick with me, Accidental Anarchists. Um, and let me open up with this little parable. There were two politicians from opposing parties who went to church and as they prayed, one politician said, God, I thank you. I'm not like the rest of these people, these thieves and crooks and murderers and adulterers. And I especially thank you that I'm not like that politician. Meanwhile, the other politician was in the back with his head down, afraid to really look up to God, praying, God, give me mercy. Forgive me, a sinner. Now, if you're trying to figure out which party either politician was with, we're missing the point altogether. Uh, I intentionally left out any parties because it has nothing to do with political parties. It has to do with really, this is sort of a modern telling, my own modern telling. I took a little liberty here of my own modern telling of a parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. In that parable, he he speaks about a Pharisee and a tax collector, both of which are a part of a political realm, both of which who are engaging in political activities, collecting taxes, and of course, the Pharisees and how how they engage the politics of the day from a religious perspective. And the Pharisee is the one who was saying, God, I'm, I'm, thank you that I'm not like the rest of these people. Thank you that I'm not like the rest of these sinners. And meanwhile, the tax collector was in the back beating his chest. One version says, afraid to look to God, crying out for mercy, crying out uh, for salvation and forgiveness because he sees himself as a sinner. Now, we may think to ourselves, I would never, like when we hear that parable, like, wow, I would never say that about somebody else. But in reality, we all have a propensity to judge those who sin differently than we do. We all have a propensity to judge those who sin differently than we do. We can see it all over uh, social media these days. We can see it all over the news these days. And we make quick judgments about what people are doing or what people are not doing, uh, whether they're wearing a mask or not wearing a mask, whether they're protesting or not protesting, whether they all the different things that are happening, their political parties, their affiliations. We make extreme judgments about them based upon these ways that we consider they are sinning. And while we're being honest, uh, let's just go all in, right? While we're being honest, we must admit the fact that we all sin. We all have moments where we act in rebellion to God and in rebellion to his kingdom. Uh, Like, accidental anarchists, we throw our hearts into disorder as we enthrone our own desires as the governing authority. This is where the the title of the sermon, Accidental Anarchists, came from, because here's what happens when we uh, have this propensity towards sin and we begin to uh, uh, house sin in our hearts. We throw our hearts into disorder. Accidental anarchists, we may not realize in the moment that our sinfulness is creating anarchy in our hearts, but the reality is it it is. It is disordering our hearts. It is creating a disorder in uh, the kingdom of our hearts where God is dethroned and the desires that we have are enthroned in our hearts. Anarchy is a state of disorder due to the absence of authority or due to the absence of proper authority, I would say. And I propose that most of us don't intend to disorder our hearts but we do. Accidental anarchists. And how do we do this? Well, let's look at the scripture because that's what we're here for this morning. We're going we're gonna to dive into the Bible. Let's look at the scripture. Second John, or excuse me, First John chapter 2, uh, verses um, 15 through 17. Let's read it here. It says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, other versions say lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is a powerful text that the Apostle John is writing and encouraging these these, uh, friends of his, these disciples, these followers of Jesus, that they have to be careful about the ordering of their hearts. They have to be careful about where they place um, the affections of their hearts. Matter of fact, the first thing that I see here in this text is that there is misplaced affections, misplaced affections affections. He says do not love the world or the things in this world. He's saying do not misplace your affections. Now first let's be clear about what this is not saying. Okay? Cuz if we're if we're if we're not careful here we can get we can confuse this idea without defining some terms, right? So um, he, he's saying, do not love the world. And that can be confusing because this, this is the same John that wrote the book of John where it says, for God so loved the world. And so if, if we don't define the terms here, this could get uh, a little bit confusing. We might, we might end up um, in the wrong place or having the wrong um, uh, point of view or perspective on what he means when he says, do not love the world. So let's define these terms. What he is not saying, he is not saying that we should hate creation. Right, the created world, the the uh, the mountains and the trees and sunsets and the oceans and the and the beautiful things that God has created for us, the meals that we get to enjoy, the the relationships that we have with people. He's not saying that we have to hate those things. No, God created those things for us to enjoy them. So He's not saying hate the creation. He's also not saying hate the secular things, things that have no religious affiliation. Um, I've, I've noticed over the, the decades that I've been a believer, how many people try to create, um, Christian versions of secular things. So we have Christian, um, art and we have Christian music and we have Christian coffee shops and, and we're trying to, to, to reject the secular coffee shop. Listen, man, I just want good coffee. If you're a Christian, just open a coffee shop and make really good coffee. We don't need Christian coffee shops. We need Christians who know how to make good coffee. Did you catch the difference? So he's not saying that we have to hate secular things like good coffee shops or good music. He's not saying that we have to hate the culture that is around us, the culture that we enjoy and that we love. Um, there's no need for us to, to, uh, to uh, rail against, um, the culture. There's no need for us to rail against the things that, that, uh, our culture provides to us. There's no sense in railing. It's a big one. Railing against people. He's not asking us to hate people. He's not asking us to other people to make them into the others or the enemies of our lives. No, he's not doing that because God so loved the world, that's why he sent his son into the world to save the world. So he's not asking us to hate those things. What he is doing, and he's, say, he's saying, do not love the world. And what he means by the world is the world as it is arrayed in rebellion against God. Now, people can use things in creation or secular things or cultural things or even people to rail against or to rebel against God. And so we have to be aware of that. If the music that you're listening to is, is railing and rebelling against God, that it is overtly making declarations about who God is or who God isn't that is contrary to God's character, then of course, we don't want to take the time or use our energy or efforts, our resources to, to support. That idea. But in the big picture, what John is saying is do not love the world or do not love the things of the world that is arrayed and rebellion against God. Why? Well, he goes on to say if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So the love of the world, this this world that's arrayed, this order that's arrayed in rebellion against God, if we love that, it makes no room for the love of the Father in our hearts. It's this competing idea. We're going to either love the world or we're going to love the Father, but we cannot love the world and love the Father at the same time. Love of the world makes no room for love of the Father. No room to receive the love of the Father and no room to release the love of the Father in our lives. Matter of fact, Jesus talked about this briefly when he said in Matthew six twenty four that no one can serve two masters. He says, you're either gonna hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. He's like, you cannot serve God and money. You can't uh, allow your affections to be placed in two gods at the same time. He's saying you're either going to have an affection towards the world or an affection towards God, but you will not be able to divide your affections to the world and to God. You're going to hate one. You're going to love the other. You're going to serve one. You're going to to disobey the other and despise the other. You cannot serve God. And at this point, he said mammon or money or the spirit of man and the spirit of money, which is the same as the spirit of the world in a lot of ways. So the first thing I see that John is encouraging us in this regards is, hey, don't love the world. Don't allow your affections to be misplaced. This is what happens when we become accidental anarchists. We misplace our affections. All of a sudden, the world captures our hearts and there's no longer room for the love of the Father in our hearts. You can see how that would disorder our hearts. So do not give the affection reserved for God to the systems that are arrayed against God in rebellion. Let me say that again. Do not give the affection reserved for God to the systems that are arrayed against God in rebellion. Now, How does this happen? How do we how do we get to a place where we misplace our affection? Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, today I'm going to choose to take the affections that I have towards God and place them on something other than God. This is why it's accidental anarchists. How do we end up in a place where we're loving the world instead of loving God? where we've enthroned the the things of the world instead of God himself enthroned in our hearts. Well, he goes on to define what it means to love the world or what the world has to offer. What is it that's seducing us, if you will, from the world? And I would call these misled desires. So we've misplaced affection, but the misplaced affection comes from misled desires. He says, all that is in the world. He said, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, for all that is in the world is. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The world's seduction, remember, the world that is arrayed against God and rebellion, the seduction of that rebellious world, boils down to these three things, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. All of sinfulness, all of rebellion, all of internal anarchy in our hearts comes from these three things. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. Now, that word lust means this, cravings that control. A lust is a craving that controls. Or you could say a desire for what is forbidden. Lust is a desire for what is forbidden. So he says, these three things, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Let's define those really quick. The lust of the flesh is the physical desires that we have. These overwhelming physical cravings that control us. They could be sexual cravings. They can be uh, cravings for food. They can be cravings for revenge and sort of this rage inside of us, this internal like physical feeling that we have that is controlling our life. Lust of the eyes, this is sort of the pleasurable, pleasurable Desires, The things that we can see with our eyes and those cravings that we see begin to um, control us, that, like covetousness and envy. We see they have this car, they have um, that home, or they have this sort of way of life. And all of a sudden we see something and it begins to direct our desires. It begins to control our cravings for what we can see that is pleasurable to our eyes And lastly, pride of life. And this is sort of the desire to be in control, this idea of being self-sovereign or being God-like, that I I got this, God, I can control this. Amen. Now, left to ourselves, as what I've called many times self-sovereigns, we become susceptible to the seductions of the world's systems, So when we're left to our own reasoning, we're left to being our own governors of our hearts, the self-sovereign governors of our hearts, all of a sudden we become susceptible to the seductions of the world's systems. This is where we get these misled desires. All of a sudden we're desiring things that we were never intended to desire. Now, probably the best place to find this um, this this uh, idea of lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life, where there was a, a, a incredible uh, failure in following the ways of God, is in Adam and Eve. Uh, we all probably know this story in Genesis chapter 3 of the fall. I've talked about it before. I just felt led to talk about it again today. But in Genesis chapter 3, We have this story where being left to themselves, uh, Adam and Eve become essentially the first accidental anarchists. I don't believe that Adam and Eve really woke up that morning and said, today is the day we are going to overthrow the throne of God in our hearts, and we're going to give way to uh, the sinfulness. Uh, We're going to give way to becoming our own governors, our own leaders, self-sovereign. They didn't wake up with that intention. What happened was they were seduced into this moment. They were deceived into this moment, and in being seduced and deceived, they disobeyed God and became accidental anarchists. So here we have Adam and Eve in in the Garden uh, Temptation, what we would call the Garden Temptation chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 3. And I, I want to tell, I, I want to point a couple things out here about the Garden Temptation. One, recognize that they are in the garden and they are, um, they have nothing but abundance. They lack for nothing. There is abundance all around as they are in the garden. They are probably in the least vulnerable position humanity has Ever abandoned in the history of the world because everything that they need, everything that they want for um, is has been provided by God they have been placed into this garden they are covered in the glory of God they walk with God we talked about this last week they walk with God um, they know God deeply, and so they 're in the least vulnerable situation here, and what happens is they begin to reason with rebellion. Now I place Adam right alongside Eve in this. So I don't say, well, it's Eve's fault. The Bible tells us that Eve was deceived, but Adam disobeyed. And I think that the scripture is clear that Adam is right there with Eve as this whole reasoning is happening. Uh, So Genesis chapter three, let's just start in verse one real quick. And it says this, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And the scripture goes on to say that all of a sudden they recognized they were naked, they were ashamed. And we go on from there. But here is the first uh, accidental anarchist, Adam and Eve in the garden. And the, the story is interesting. The serpent comes to them and they begin to reason with the serpent. And the serpent says, did God say that you can't eat of the trees in the garden, right? What is he doing? He is trying to draw their attention from the abundance that God has provided to the one tree that God has said you shall not eat from. So instead of God being this great provider, this abundant giver, they, are, they the, the serpent is trying to frame God as a withholder, as someone who, who is keeping things. From Adam and Eve. And so, as Eve begins to reason with the serpent, he says, No, God didn't say we can eat of the trees. We just can't eat of that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We just can't eat of that one tree because if we eat of it, even if we touch it, we'll die. And the serpent's like, No, 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 no. God has lied to you. See, they begin to reason with rebellion right here. God has lied to you. You won't die. God just doesn't want you to be like him, knowing good and evil. And then verse six, which is the the, the key here to the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Here's what happens to Eve. It says, so when the woman Eve saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, and that it was a delight to the eyes, lust of the eyes, and that the tree was was to be desired to make one wise or like God. Pride of life. She took its fruit and she ate the fruit. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her. Do you see this? This is the beginning, the root system of all sinfulness in the world. Of all rebellion against God comes from these three things. And the apostle John is trying to encourage us, hey, don't misplace your affection by being misled in your desires. If your desires are for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the lust or the pride of life, then you will find your affection in the world. You will be a person who is captured by the love of the world. Do not do this very thing. In, 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 you know, in, in effect he's saying, "Do not give the affection or excuse me, in effect, he's saying, don't give into the systems or seductions of the world because they are temporary. They're passing away. They're unworthy of affection. It's like all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, it's from the world, And it goes on to say, "And this world is passing away." Along with its desires. So, Adam and Eve, all of a sudden, they give in to the desires, these misled desires. They give in to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. They eat of the fruit, and what happens? Their death sets in. They're separated from God. All that is in the world is passing away, and all of its desires. Death comes when we um, when we give way to the uh, desires of this world, because all that is in the world is passing away. They are temporary. They are unworthy of our affection, and the Apostle John is trying to encourage his readers. Listen. Don't give in. Don't misplace your affection in the things of the world. Don't allow uh, the things of this world, all that is in the world, to mislead you in your desires, the longings, the cravings of your heart. Don't give in to the systems or seductions of the world because they're temporary, they're passing away, and they are unworthy of your affection. So what then shall we do, right? What, wh- what does this leave us with? And I would encourage you uh, to go and read the entire um, book of 1 John because it's a beautiful letter that John is writing here. And in, in this letter, he is he's the overarching idea is that God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. Therefore, walk as children of the light and that God is love and that we should demonstrate the love of the Father to our brothers, uh, that we should love God. And in loving God, we know that we love God by how we love each other. So I would encourage you to read this whole thing. But in effect, what John is, leading them, directing them towards as being mature disciples. He says at the end of this, he says, the world is passing away along with its desires, but that's really important. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. So he's really trying to encourage them towards a mature discipleship. Mature discipleship is the one who does the will of the father. The one who recognizes the, the affections of the world are temporary, who recognizes that they're not worthy of affection and therefore allows themselves or turns themselves towards the will of the father and allows the father to be enthroned in the heart, the ways of the kingdom to be enthroned in their heart so the apostle john is writing this letter to encourage your readers towards a mature faith a mature discipleship and the telltale sign of true and mature, mature discipleship is one who does the will of the father doing his will is proof of rightly placed love rightly placed desire or affection matter of fact John closes, 1 John, this first letter, he closes it in chapter 5, verse 21, by saying this, Keep yourself from idols. In effect, anything that we enthrone in our hearts, any place where we put affection that belongs to God is an idol. And so John ends the entire letter of 1 John by saying, don't keep yourself from idols. Why? The entire letter is leading people towards mature discipleship. Walk in the light. Be children of the light. Love because God is love. Do the will of the Father and you will abide forever. There's a way to overcome these sort of misled desires and misplaced affections. And John encourages it actually in verse 14 of chapter 2. He says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So before he even goes into do not love the world, which is verse 15, before he goes there, he says, listen, I'm writing to you because you're strong and because the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So do not love the world or the things of the world because, as we read. So how do we find this or how do we walk through this? What's our example of this mature discipleship, this doing the will of the Father? Well, Jesus is our perfect example. He too was tempted as we are, yet without sin. We call this the the desert temptation, right? So we have the garden temptation with Adam and Eve, the first accidental anarchist. In the garden temptation, they are surrounded by abundance. In the desert temptation with Jesus, there's nothing but scarcity, He's been led to the desert to fast for 40 days and 40 nights, and there is nothing. There is no food. It is scarcity in the desert, whereas in the garden there, they are the least vulnerable. They have everything that they need from God. In the desert, Jesus seems to find himself in a most vulnerable place. He's hungry, and there's no food. He's been fasting and praying for 40 days and 40 nights alone in the desert, in the desolate place. And as Adam and Eve in the garden temptation reasoned with the idea of rebellion and therefore gave into the desires of their hearts, Jesus in the desert overcomes this temptation by the word. Remember, John said, I write to you, young men, because you are strong. The word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. This is how we overcome the evil one. Jesus showed us the way we overcome the evil one. These temptations, these accidental anarchist moments where we enthrone the desires of our heart um, rather than God's will or God's plan in our life, we overcome them by the word. So here, the desert temptation, Matthew 4, verses one through 11 says this, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the, t- of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they shall bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone shall you serve. And then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, Hopefully you caught that. Jesus was also tempted three times in The desert, similar to Adam and Eve. There was a sort of three levels of temptation for Adam and Eve, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Here we have that with Jesus. Jesus is in this vulnerable state, a state of scarcity in the desert. Just him alone with the spirit of God and the devil comes to tempt him. Now, just like in the garden where the devil tries to to, um, distort the image of God for Adam and Eve, did God really say, God lied to you, this whole idea? He comes to Jesus and tries a similar tactic and he says to them, if you are the son of God, notice that he is first trying to challenge the, the identity of Jesus and indeed trying to challenge God himself. It, it, there's an underlying implication that God is a liar. You're not really the son of God. If you were the son of God, you could prove it by doing these few things that I'm going to share with you. And so he's he's challenging Jesus in his identity. And he comes to him, he says, if you're the son of God, he knows that he's hungry. He says, command these stones to become loaves of bread. There is the lust of the flesh. Jesus responds to this temptation with what? It is written. Now, you cannot respond to temptation with the word if you don't know the word. Jesus said it is written. He knows the word. Indeed, he is the living word, but that's a different situation. He knows the word of God, and because he knows the word, he can respond with the word. We need to be people of the word. We, we cannot overcome our sinful nature. We cannot overcome the temptations of the devil and becoming accidental anarchists if we don't understand the will of God, which is found in the word of God. Again, he encourages, I write to you, young men." Because you are strong, because the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. It's like he's saying, you overcome the evil one and you are strong because the word of God is abiding in you. This is what Jesus does. Turn these stones into bread. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So he overcomes the lust of the flesh. The devil tries again, takes him to a holy city, sets him on the pinnacle of the temple, says, hey man, if you're the son of God, there it is again, throw yourself down for it is written. Now the devil is trying to quote scripture back to Jesus. It is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. This is the lust of the eyes. Let's do something that is so spectacular that everybody can see how spectacular. Throw yourself off of this temple and everybody will see the angels angels coming to, to rescue you, right? This very spectacular sight, uh, vision type idea, the lust of the eyes. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put your Lord God to the test. The word. Lastly, the devil takes him to a high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He says to him, all these I'm going to give to you if you'll fall down and worship me. This is the pride of life, the desire to be God, to have this self-sovereign idea. This is really I've heard many people say this before. This is really uh, Satan offering Jesus another way besides the cross to rule and reign over the world. Jesus knows that the the whole goal of him putting on flesh is to come die a death on a cross in place of us so that he can make a way for us to be right with God, so that he can be the King of kings and Lord of lords in our lives. And here, uh, Satan is offering another way around. Like, hey, there's another way you can lead. There's another way you can... You can um you can be the king of these these empires, these nations, these this world. It's like just just bow down and worship me and I'll give them to you. The pride of life. When Jesus says to him, Be gone, Satan. Here it is. It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. And the devil left him. The way to overcome or to avoid anarchy in our hearts is to abide in Christ, the living word of God. The only way that we can live this sort of overcoming life, this overcoming idea of like God is enthroned in my heart. I I am working against the anarchy of my own heart where I decide that I'm going to rule, that I'm going to reign. The only way to overcome these desires, this misplaced affection, this misled desire is if I can abide in Christ and let the word of Christ dwell richly in me. So I want to encourage you, church, get into your scriptures, get into your word. I want to encourage you, do an assessment of your own heart. Have you become an accidental anarchist? Is your heart in total disorder or disarray because the wrong authority is in place, meaning you have become the authority of your own heart rather than God, rather than God's word and God's will, which is found in his word? Do an assessment. And listen, if you find out that you do have and an a little anarchist in your heart that you have become this accidental anarchist here's the good news repent back to the earlier parable you know the one politician says, "God, I thank you. I'm not like the rest of these people." Little did he know, he's has the oh, his own anarchy going on in his own heart. He is sinful. He is in need of a savior, but he does not recognize it. I'm thank you. I'm not like the rest of these sinners. These people are so bad. They they they're murderers and adulterers and these things they do. I'm not like them. He goes on to list like the things that he does so well. Meanwhile, the other one is sitting in the corner, in the back. And he's praying, God, give me mercy, forgive me a sinner forgive me i'm an accidental anarchist forgive me i'm too often am enthroning things in my heart too often i am misplacing the affection that belongs to you too often god i am being led by desires the lust of my flesh the lust of my eyes the pride of my life that is creating this disorder in my heart lord forgive me a sinner enthrone yourself in my heart again let your word dwell richly within me god so that I might be one who does the will of the Father, that I might be an overcomer, that I might abide in you, Jesus, the living word of God. I hope that helps you today. Let's be people who do the will of the Father, who do not love the things of this world or the world, but that we enthrone the the, the living word of God, Jesus, in our hearts, where he becomes the authority for the way that we live. Let's pray. Father, search us and know us. Uh, Examine our hearts. Reveal to us where we maybe have uh, been in rebellion to you, where we have allowed sinfulness to reign in our hearts, our own uh, misled desires of the lust of our flesh or our eyes or the pride of this life. And Lord, we pray that you would root it out of us. Reveal it to us and help us to repent and root it out. Be merciful merciful to us, Lord. Forgive us of our sins, God. May you reign and rule in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. And the good news is that the Bible says that if we ask for forgiveness, that God will forgive us, that he will forgive us and forget our sins, that he will remember them no more. God is such a good, merciful, and gracious God. Before you go today, let me pray this prayer, this blessing over you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God bless you. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening. It's our desire to lead people to know Christ and to make him known. If you'd like to support the ministry of Hope Assembly, go to hopeassembly.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.